0: This is episode 115 of Reconcile the Isle.
1: What on earth is going on? Rocket man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. <laughs> deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. <laughs> Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle.
0: Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren LaJudice. Today, we're going to speak with special guest Gina Hill about restorative justice. But first, let's go to our Stupid People segment. For those who are new here, Stupid People is a part of the podcast where we salute stupidity because what unites us all across all sorts of boundaries, political party, religion, race, sexuality is that we hate stupid people. So here's our segment, stupid people.
1: Okay. You're driving along on a highway. You're doing, you know, the speed limit is 60. You're doing 60, 65, 70, whatever. You know, you always got your knuckleheads that are like, you know, the right lane is for the slow people. The middle lane is, you know, moderate and and the left lane is for if you want to go fast, you know. But anyway, you're going all of a sudden traffic slows down and now you're doing five miles an hour and you're figuring, oh, I wonder if there's an accident you put on the news that they they give you the updates every 10 minutes on traffic and stuff. You don't hear nothing. Finally, 20 minutes goes by. You've only gone like, you know, one block on a highway where you could have gone in 20 minutes. You could have went at 60 miles an hour. You could have went 20 miles. And what is it? There's a car on the side of the road, on the shoulder, not blocking the traffic, all right? And it's either like it, it could be a reason it could be a guy guy's got a flat tire they over the car overheated uh, you know could be anything could be they had to change the kid's diaper could be anything all right but everybody gotta slow down they just slow down and look you know i mean can't you just like make believe you change your range you look in your rearview mirror your side view mirror when you look in the mirror you don't stay there and look like it's a television and you're watching fucking gone with the wind. You glance up and you fucking put your eyes back on the road. And it's the same thing. These fucking, like they see a cop car on the side of the road. The cop is out of the car talking to the guy in the car. He's going to give the guy a ticket. So these people slow down to 20 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour. What do you fucking actually think? The cop is fucking gonna jump in his car and fucking start the engine and fucking chase you and not give that guy a ticket? Are you fucking that really stupid? Fucking unbelievable. So, that is our first five rectum <laughs> rating. That gets the five rectum rating. There's the first one of the year. Okay? All right, you got a five out of five. Okay? So, until the next time we meet, stay safe. And don't let me find you on the road and have to call you uh, worse than a rectum. OK, <laughs> adios.
0: now let's get to the interview with special guest Gina Hill. Gina M. Hill is currently the lead administrator at the Oakland Emiliano Zapata Street Academy High School and a trainer with RJTI, Restorative Justice Training Institute, founded by Rita Renjitham alfred Gina M. Hill has been an educator in Oakland, California, public schools for over 20 years as a teacher, counseling teacher mentor, after school program coordinator and administrator as principal at Street Academy. She led the school wide implementation of restorative justice and dynamic mindfulness to create an intentional school culture aiming to resist institutionally racist norms that ultimately funnel our most vulnerable youth into the school-to-prison pipeline. In her spare time, she enjoys samba, dancing, and yoga. Full disclosure, when I was fresh out of Wesleyan, out of college, I taught at Street Academy. I was a chemistry teacher, if you can imagine it, and honestly, I miss that job every day. I could say firsthand that that school continues to do work that is just... Extraordinary. They take kids who everyone has given up on and turn them around. And we'll talk more about how you can find out more about the school at the end of the interview. Now, if you're wondering how we can fix the punitive system of punishment that we have in our school system that is not working, you'll want to hear this episode. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway. And you can always sign up at laurenloji.com slash podcast to get all the wonderful things that my podcast guests and I give away for free to subscribers. And you'll get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host Melania Trump can't actually come into this interview today, but she's quarantined in the glam room. So she's going to call in some White House updates. Melania, are you, are you there on the line? Melania? Yes. Hi, everyone. Hope you're having a be best day. Well, I'm using my extra time. Quite wisely in doing some White House renovations to make them more emblematic. Oh, that's big word I use of the Trump family in the White House Library. I am taking all of the books off the shelves and instead using them to house the collection of toys from all of Donald's McDonald's Happy Meals. I'm touching up the Red Room, that's where the Putin stays, and the press briefing room. Oh yes. That one, we've had to change its function. Now it's just used for a place to Donald to go when he sleepwalks in middle of night and goes and yells the comebacks for questions asked weeks ago. Well, you can get all my other Be Best updates at www.melaniashow.com. Be best and bye. All right. So let's go to the interview with Gina Hill. Thank you, Gina Hill, for joining us at Reconcile the Isle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are recording this um, during the coronavirus epidemic. Tell us about your work with restorative justice, how you came to it and what you're working with it now.
2: Restorative justice and I met as, uh, when I was a counselor teacher mentor at the Oakland Emiliano Zapata Street Academy, um, which is a small alternative school in Oakland that you know a little bit about. Yep. And, um, there was this, a teacher there named Dave Chin, who now teaches abroad who introduced me to this concept of a different way to do school and a different way to do discipline and a different way in which people were trying to work in juvenile justice systems and the most intriguing part was the work that had been that i had heard about from him and through books and stuff about the way that restorative justice had actually shifted incarceration numbers in New Zealand, for, particularly for youth and that the numbers were so low since these, uh, the Maori people had started to um, interact with the justice system and introduced their cultural traditions to try to intervene when youth did harm and virtually eliminated a need for a juvenile justice system. So that was really powerful. And I said, well, let me check this out. So I ended up meeting Rita Alfred, or Rita Rengidham Alfred, as she's known, in, who was working at Cole Middle School in West Oakland. And Cole Middle School was the pilot program, basically, for restorative justice in Oakland Unified School District. That school actually closed, but before they closed, they'd seen some really dramatic results from just implementing restorative justice with adults, like decreases in referrals and suspensions and increases in um, test scores, actually. And so Rita came and trained us over at Street Academy, and I've been running ever since.
0: (laughs) And so what exactly does it mean? Like, what does restorative justice entail?
2: So I will define it from an education perspective so in education it's all about shifting from a punitive lens toward a more restorative lens and not punishing people and not shaming people when they do something wrong and using it as a kind of like a teachable moment to um, help young people learn from mistakes and grow so usually the opposite of that in our schools is suspend them exclude them shame them. And then what happens is students lose interest in school. They don't feel welcome or loved or needed or necessary, and they feel failed and given up on by adults versus being surrounded by adults and elders and encouraged to do better and taught how to do better and given chances to, to learn it and demonstrate that they can live up to these values that are set.
0: Practically, like, I, um, I curse at a teacher. Like, what would happen? What's the next? So
2: first we take the children out back and we beat them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. You know, what would happen is the kid would probably be asked not to come back to the class until they're able to figure out a time to sit down and, and have a harm circle with the student and with the teacher. And then you have to prepare the student and prepare the teacher and anybody else who can bring information about the situation. And usually what happens is you find out backstory and you figure out why this young person took their frustrations out on this teacher. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you find out the teacher may have done something that made the kid feel disrespected and so you have Two harms. So after the preparation, we would sit them down in a circle run by the restorative justice coordinator, or sometimes it's run by the teacher or the CTM, and they they have a a conversation using this indigenous circle practice to set values and um, come up with some kind of a solution. You know, how can the student who harmed the teacher repair that harm? Or if the teacher harmed the student, what can the teacher do to? Repair that harm and then there's a reentry process where the student is brought back to the class and welcomed back after having the process with the teacher the The ideal is that the teacher is really ready to welcome the student back and talk about this is, you know, what happened in the process and this is how we're moving forward and the student might offer an apology. The teacher might offer an apology. Mm -hmm. I've seen like really powerful circles where a kid gets put out of class and then the, the student and the teacher came together and had their conversation and they realized problems in their relationship that had kind of been going on for a long time. So then they came back to the whole class who had witnessed the kid getting put out, welcomed the kid back, and the teacher talked about, you know, these are the things that I feel bad about and that I did wrong you know, and so moving forward, I want to do more of this. And then, you know, other students said, well, you know, i been kind of an asshole too. And, you know, I, w- I think I'll try to be a little bit better. And those experiences are like, woo-hoo, the most beautiful. And you see the growth in the classroom and, and then you see those types of issues become less and less and less
0: frequent. Wow.
2: Um, I said a lot.
0: No, no, it's really great. Um, I'm curious, too, to just because, like, breaking it down for people. So I worked with you and other people at the Emiliano Zapata Street Academy. And, and so, we had so much fun. I think we I need mean, to, so, yeah, so much fun. It's, like, <laughs> best times. And I came out and performed in September and, and got to hang out with you guys again, which was awesome. Really yes. Um, and I guess two things to clarify with people. Like, one is, like, what is Emiliano Zapata Street Academy? And what makes it different than other schools? This uh, fabulous
2: little school was founded in 1973. It was born out of the civil rights movement and black and brown power movements. And basically it's was um, created in partnership with the National Urban League. Marcus Foster, the first African-American superintendent, was involved in planning this school. And it was the community came out and was like, hey, Some of the larger schools are failing the kids and they're not dropping out. They're being pushed out. Mm -hmm. And so this small school and several other street academies were created to prevent youth from being pushed out or dropping out of uh, these institutions where they were pretty much anonymous and Mm kind of disregarded and and considered bad kids.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So there were a bunch of street academies that functioned as schools and the one in Oakland is the only one left that still functions as a high school, and we partner with Oakland Unified to provide dropout prevention services for youth grades 9 through 12. So we're taking kids who have fallen back behind on credits or maybe they got expelled or something like that and love them up and try to get them in the college, get them a four-year diploma and get them in college.
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's such a different, like, uh, it's so different than any other school I've ever been to. It's, you know, we were very very close with the kids. Like, you can't just go up to school and, like, fall through the cracks. Like, Mm -hmm. you're on the phone with the parents. I might go by Mm -hmm. the house. You
2: know, it's very, Mm -hmm. it was very... It's very- yeah, that's what's happening right now. Like CTMs are driving Chromebooks over to the house so the students can do distance learning and mm-hmm. checking in with them, you know, every day and texting with them and just trying to stay connected because, you know, it's less about the schoolwork now in a pandemic. It's more about the connection and I think um, the biggest worry for me is the students that we can't reach, you know, who don't have a lot of access, whose phones may have got cut off because they can't pay their bills. They don't have internet, you know, and you just don't hear anything from them. So you got to go drive by, try to find them.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it works in like how many students like did graduate and go on to four-year schools and now they're doing all sorts of cool things. Um, and we got, we, got, we got to see that. Uh, One of the
2: students who graduated is now the executive director. Yeah. Bukola Luana. <laughs> well,
0: shout out, shout out to my CTM. <laughs> and for those of CTM is counseling teacher Mentor. Oh, yeah, I keep saying CTM. You your classes, and then you have like a group of people that you kind of look after. And it's every, like an advisory. Advisory. And every yes. system, I feel like, takes on the personality of the, of the person who's advised. It's
2: true. it's true (laughs) yeah
0: definitely and another thing people might not know is like which would be obvious to people who are in education but why is the way that discipline goes forth in schools a problem so it's particularly a problem for
2: low-income youth of color Mm -hmm. who are disproportionately um, suspended disproportionately expelled, disproportionately failing, and and as a result, end up headed to the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So public schools become basically factories to supply labor in jails, right? So if we can create schools that are more nurturing, more loving, more build better relationships with young people, more culturally competent, more restorative, then we see a lot less young people being suspended. And um, in school, they'll be in school and they'll be able to be more successful. So suspension rates directly correlate with incarceration rates. The more a student is suspended, the more likely they are to end up in jail.
0: And isn't there something that were not a street academy, but other schools, they just, instead of getting suspended, they get something where they're, the cops are involved sooner now? So yeah, I would
2: say Oakland Unified is probably a little different. Yeah. Um, there are schools and districts that really emphasize police presence, and um, it ends up becoming problematic, you know, where police... Sometimes will you know use too much force and yeah. you know, you've seen the videos and, and things like that, um, but in Oakland Unified, they actually try to work with the police department because they're, Oakland Unified has its own police department yeah. to be a little bit more conscious of not arresting students if there's a warrant in school yeah so that's been something that 's actually changed recently for the better. So, you know, particularly I've been working in the alternative high schools for a long time, and that is been an issue. And so to see that change uh, for the positive is is much better. you know, And that's part of the work that lots of folks have been doing in Oakland Unified to try to create more restorative spaces. Even at Street Academy, we did a um, project with the culture keepers led by the one and only Juan Ramirez, who is the um, after-school program coordinator in conjunction with Naroga Yoga Institute, and Tanya Henderson was uh, the teacher. And they train the students in restorative justice and um, dynamic mindfulness, and they actually hosted yoga classes for police officers who came to the school and took the classes and sat in circle with them and and had conversation. It was pretty interesting. I could send you the video, actually.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely put it in the links for the... Yeah, that might
2: be a a cool thing to see. Yeah, that'd be really
0: cool. And so do you think they were able to empathize more with the students' issues in that way?
2: Yeah, you know, in some ways. You know, in some ways not, like in some ways, you know, there, there was a lot more conversation that kind of needed to happen. But I think um, the cool thing was just that the young people and the police officers, they were able to just get to know each other a little Mm -hmm. bit better and and start to understand each other's perspective a little Mm -hmm. bit better. So I think, yeah, some definitely some empathy was built, you know, as the young people kind of got more of a, because I got to talk more, debrief more with the young people than the police. Yeah. yeah. Speak more to their perspective. But the thing that I think was interesting to hear from them was them getting an understanding of what the expectations of the police officer's job is. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if they're on call, they have to have their gun on them, you know? And so they came into the school and, you know, they're, they have their gun and they're like, the kids were like, straight up, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had a dialogue about it and the young people understood that this is part of their job and they, because they might get called out at any minute, they're required to have the pistol on the hip, you know? I mean, it's
0: uh, it's so important that there's even police in schools. Like for instance, when I came back to New York, I was a teacher. Time to just skate on that experience. So I became a substitute teacher in the cushiest private schools in New York, mm-hmm. and I made sure it-
2: there were police there every day.
0: I mean, like, if there was a police officer in the building, it was like talked about. I mean, it's so they would never. It, the coddling that goes on is like obscene, mm-hmm. and the difference—it's so abhorrent right. that uh, we can't even say that that this disparity exists, mm-hmm. and that we can't even say that it's okay to have a cop in the building to begin with.
2: Yeah, uh, and I, you know, uh, a weapon. Yeah, you know, carrying <laughs> a loaded weapon and Mason other things.
0: Yeah. You're I, you like, know, but spaghetti, spaghetti, spaghetti.
2: does not have police presence. Yeah. No security guards or anything like that. If something goes down and the person who has a relationship with a student will intervene and peacefully de escalate situations.
0: Yeah. And
2: we rarely have fights even.
0: It's true. And I, I think part of it is the, is the no fight policy. Is that still in effect? Yeah, fight. That's, that's and that's always right. beautiful to see because people know it's zero tolerance fight, you fight, you get mm-hmm. kicked out most of the time. I think all the yeah, time. Most of
2: the time the students will use it as, you know, I, I'm, I have my opinions about zero tolerance policies. Like uh, zero tolerance policies are, now that we have the data, are a direct contributor to the school to prison pipeline. Right? And here Street Academy has a zero tolerance policy. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes I'm at odds with it. But when I speak to the young people, they're like, well, you know, because I didn't want to get kicked out, I made a different choice and I didn't fight. If I knew I wasn't going to get, if I thought I wasn't
0: kicked
2: out, I might have had that fight, right? So it's kind of a catch-22. Yeah, yeah. But uh, definitely trying to you know no no school is perfect street academy is not a perfect school in any way shape or form you know but we're always trying to figure out how to how to do it better so lots of conversation around what does restorative really look like in um in the school you know what does it really look like you know so can we go deeper on that and at some point not have to not have students feel like they have to rely on a zero tolerance policy to make a better choice, right? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, for me, it's, it's conversation with the young people about what do you think will work? How can we try to make it work so that, you know, you aren't flying off the handle and saying, well, I won't get kicked out, so I'll just fight. Yeah. Make the choice not to fight because it's not a, not okay to get violent, you know,
0: yeah, gotcha. I think it works also in Street Academy because it's such a community-based school. So like other students will be like, "Do you don't want to do that? Do You want? I mean, hopefully, it's more than just you want to stay, remain at the school with us." So. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and that's that's the times where you're like, "Oh, it's so beautiful." <laughs> kid, okay. kids get into
2: it. You know, they're they're teenagers. They're always getting having some kind of crazy conflict. And then their friends stepping up and saying, don't, it's a waste of time, do it. <laughs> don't do it, you might get kicked out, it's not worth it, and, and intervene and break it up before anything escalates, which is kind of, it's what usually happens in mm-hmm. those types of situations. And you're like, high five, you
0: did a good job, fine. Yeah. <laughs> the critics of this kind of way of dealing with students more with conversation and bringing people to the table Mm -hmm. say like, well, it's, there's, there's the people who just talk their way out of it. You know, they're just talking Mm -hmm. their way out of it and they're, they're just going to kind of play the game and just try to not have to actually deal Mm -hmm. with consequences. What do we say to those people?
2: Well, I think restorative justice when done right you know, is really about real accountability and deep accountability is kind of what I like to, to call it instead of consequences because consequences are punishing them, mm-hmm. you know. And so how how do you create a process where there's an, a, a deep opportunity for a relationship to be repaired? Because when harm happens, relationships get affected right Mm -hmm. and and it's probably going to continue to be affected if the um relationship isn't intentionally repaired right Mm -hmm. and so how do you do that well if it is a situation where it's between a student and a teacher how does that student and teacher intentionally figure out out of that circle process ways to repair the harm does that student then have to come to the teacher every day and get tutored mm-hmm. so that that student can pass the class? Yeah. You know, so they get that one-on-one time to sort of rebuild that relationship and, mm-hmm. and connect around academics. That's a win situation to me. You know, maybe the kid might say, well, I'll come and I'll come every Tuesday for the month and I'll sweep your classroom. You know, okay, so you're coming in, and you're you and maybe a couple other students are in there, and I'm sweeping your classroom, and then we get into conversation, and we find out we both like play the guitar. Mm-hmm. Like now we figured out a, a a different way to connect with each other, mm-hmm. and that goes a long way when we have a relationship in the classroom. You know, so what I would say to to critics is, um, so instead, it's better to to shame the kid you know, and create more harm, Mm -hmm. you know, is is it better to exclude the kid so that the kid maybe gets suspended for several days and then misses out on vital instruction and falls farther behind, and then you create sort of this vicious cycle where now the student feels disengaged, so you create a bigger problem, you know, yeah, and, and I mean, I was raised in punitive environment, you know, I I went to schools that suspend kids and, and I wouldn't say that if you have a restorative justice program, there's not suspensions, there are suspensions, you know, you just try to do it less frequently, you know, so even having been the principal of that school and other schools, like checking myself about like how ingrained punitive reactions are. And so for me, the critics, are like me they're ingrained in punitive responses that's what we know that's how we were raised so you got to put an effort in to try to like shift your mindset and think of a different way to be but maybe some of the critics are too lazy to do that
0: yeah then they might say, we have already too much to do as teachers. We can't mm-hmm. go in. I know.
2: That's mean. I said too lazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, I mean. Not, t- c- not having the capacity.
0: Yeah. They're, yeah. they're not taking the time for, for that, which is probably in the end more important in some right. way. Right. Right. So, well, the main thing is like the other way is not working. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. It's working for some. You know, it works for those that the system works for those that it's intended to work for, and it doesn't work for those that it's intended not to work for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah.
2: You know, and so here, you know, as a restorative justice practitioner, you know, and uh, a social justice advocate, here I am trying to like shift that from the inside. It's like, I need to figure out how to make this work in a system that's created not to work for black and brown kids
0: yeah you know so and so how can we use this because a lot of people are certainly having conflict within their own lives and families for so many reasons how can we use restorative justice as a way just to just to help smooth out difficulties and conflict that we have around us like
2: community conflict, or
0: yeah, community family conflict. Um... Well, you know, I would say that
2: the more we introduce these types of processes, mm-hmm. the circle processes, to young people, young people take it home. So, mm-hmm. you know? and um, particularly, I would say like the younger. Mm middle school and elementary school kids
1: mm-hmm.
2: are more apt to say hey mom let's sit down and ha- i have a talking piece and let's sit down and <laughs> have a conversation that way you know even you know my high school students will go home and and tell their families about it mm-hmm. as well you know i just feel like i've heard it more frequently for come from younger people and that's kids going home and being like I have a talking piece and I'm getting into it with my sister. Or Maybe we should use it, you know, so not to just put the onus on young people to figure it out. But I think that's one piece of it is that they feel it in their heart, like this worked for me in a better way. Yeah. So now I want to take it home and see it work for my little sister or, or work with a situation yeah. with my parent. The other thing is if schools are using it and using these processes, then When a family shows up to the school, they're involved in the process. They see it. And nine times out of 10, the feedback is that they really appreciate being able to be in a process like that and that it was really different and it was a different experience than some of the other schools where the kid just got suspended. You know, I get the kids once they've fallen behind on credits, once they've been suspended, sometimes expelled, and the parents are saying, this isn't working for them, so I have to provide something different, you know. Yeah. And they're very appreciative of that. Do they go home and sit in circle? No, maybe. You know, some some might. Will they try to have discussion and conversation and fix relationship with the, the their young person and at home mm-hmm. a little more? Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. And then it's to me it's also about healing restorative justice is about healing and and healing in communities and the healing that needs to happen in in families. if families are poor, there's absolutely more health issues, mental health and physical health. It's just fact you know, and so when you have you know that it's all it's also about like being in spaces where you're in good relationship with people and it's also about i know you need support and i'm going to get you connected to mental health resources you know and then you know a mental health practitioner can sit down with the family and and help facilitate those types of uh, Mm. conversations so i think it's not just circles you know Mm -hmm. that can help i think that um you know there is a lot of power in sitting in circle and in community and i I think there's a lot of potential for restorative justice to be used more in communities. There's actually a, um, restore Oakland just opened up in the fruit vale in Oakland and it, they transfer, uh, they, this, uh, old nightclub that into a restorative justice space. Ella Baker center is involved and, uh, our Joy, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. And there's a bunch of other organizations that are involved that I can't remember right now. But if you go to Ella Baker website, you can see that this new space is available for people to, for community. And it's, it's about not only about having a space where people can go to hold these restorative talking circles below as a restaurant and it's about workforce development.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: people can go there and train, get jobs. Mm-hmm. If they've been formally incarcerated you know they can go to this space so it, there's a lot of thing a lot of factors i think in creating like real community wellness particularly in low income communities of color and it's one example of an organization s- several organizations coming together to shift things so
0: That's really cool. So, if people wanted to look for restorative justice centers or resources in their community, is it as simple as just Googling restorative justice plus Detroit or New York? Oh, yeah.
2: I think so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you googled restorative justice Oakland, our joy would come up restorative justice for Oakland youth, which is a great place to start, right? Yeah. I I think restorative justice is, is spreading around the globe. And it's about getting back to ancient ways of being, you know, that are more in harmony with our humanity Mm -hmm. and more in harmony with the earth. And to me, that's something that I, in the midst of this crazy COVID-19 pandemic is something that we need more than ever. Mm -hmm. There's lots of like poetry and things that have come out about how we're going to be different, you know, when we come yeah. out of this. And I'm like, damn it. I hope we are. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. we, we can't go on in the same way. It's not productive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have one of my characters has a question for you. Carmela Rivoli is here. Hi Carmela. He's the thing. So I have a lot of assholes in my family. I don't know if you have the same thing, but the thing is, that oh, the circles in yeah. the talking, that reminds me of dinner, like dinner tables and sitting around the table. And all that usually results in is yelling. So next time I sit down to dinner, well, I have two questions really. One, when the war starts, which means as soon as Antipasco's on the table, what do I do to stop? Because I really can't stand the screaming anymore. It messes with my martini. Second of all, the thing is, there are sort of justice beliefs people can change. But I've seen so many people in my family never change for 80 years. They born a complainer and they end a complainer. So where does restorative justice fit in there?
2: Well, you know, uh, it's restorative justice is is voluntary. You know, people have to volunteer into the process, and so going to the dinner table and and you know breaking out a talking piece and saying, oh, everybody, let's let's come together and and change around this topic probably could work but not likely if people aren't willing to volunteer to the pro- to the process. So I would say maybe you have a dinner and you invite people over and you tell them you want to talk about something and they're prepared to step into the conversation and they know what they're walking into and they voluntarily do it then your conversation your talking circle might go a little bit better
0: Mm. it's like a sit down is that yeah
2: kind of like a sit down and you know you might also ask for somebody who's a restorative practitioner who knows the process and can hold the space for you to to join your dinner so you don't have to you can fully participate and you know they might ask you not to bring a martini So,
0: (laughs) can I have my cigarettes, though? I might need to smoke.
2: (laughs) You know, I'm in California, so we would say uh, no, unless you're sitting outside.
0: (laughs) Well, my family might need to hold the space and hold people back, but that's just where I come (laughs) from. Yeah,
2: I hear you. I hear you on that one.
0: (laughs) What can you make me believe that people can change? Do you have an example of someone that's really changed with this process so I can believe maybe some? people that i have in my life can change
2: i changed as a result of this process i feel i feel like particularly professionally you know and and not this uh process i guess gave me the courage to be able to try to do something different in education i was kind of scared of taking those types of of risks and trying to do something different and saying, no, I'm not going to suspend this kid. And we're all going to sit down and we're going to try to work this out. And sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, but I believed enough in the process to, to find, to gain that courage to say, I'm going to try something different. So much so that now I'm pursuing restorative justice, training more on a full-time basis so that I can spread the, the, the message. And I've had uh, students who come into the school, and they're in the habit of not going to school, and they might be in the habit of smoking weed every day, and they might be in the habit of drinking sometimes, drinking alcohol, you know. And we put them through uh, several different circles processes with grandparents present, and and parents present, and teachers present, and their friends present, and over and over and over again, you know, from sophomore year all the way through. And then by the end of the year and the student come, coming back as a, an 11th grader, isn't smoking every day. Mm. He isn't drinking every day. You know, he's coming to school regularly. He passes all his classes and he gets full credit, you know. So, yeah, I see, I've seen human beings change
0: mm. a lot. You make me believe in people, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> <Woo-hoo>! Mission accomplished. <laughs> nice awesome. to meet you, Carmela. <laughs> nice to meet you, Gina. All right. All right, so where can people find out more about your work and, um, yeah, specifically your work, Restorative Justice, we know how they can go about finding that in their area, but mm-hmm. how do they follow your work? What you're
2: doing? Um, so I would say, I, I would plug, plug, plug Restorative Justice Training Institute because I work mostly um, with Rita Alfred and that's her organization. And so RJTICA for California.org is the website. And then, you know, also I would plug www.oaklandstreetacademy.org um, because I'm still really involved with the work there.
1: Absolutely.
0: And is there, if someone wants to, to donate to Oakland Truth Academy, is there a donate button anywhere on there? Mm. There's an address if you want to send a check. There used to be. Yeah,
2: there used to be the, the PayPal. I think the PayPal button is still on the website. I haven't okay, looked at it. Oh, that's the bad.
0: There. There's also the address, and mm-hmm. checks are accepted. Um, checks
2: are absolutely accepted. You can mail um, them to 417 29th Street. Oakland,
0: California, 94609. <laughs> Attention, Nancy Hanna. There <laughs> we go. Uh, well, thank you so much, Gina. Um, for thank
2: our- you. I had so much fun.
0: So, Melania, are you going to start a talking circle during the next Trump family dinner? Oh, no one eats together. Even for Christmas, they just come collect their check and then go back to helping the world by destroying it. Oh dear, okay, so for the rest of us, let's think about this. The current state of how schools work with students on behavior is not working, and there are people doing incredible work to change that. Look to restorative justice. Next, as you deal with conflict, think about the relationships that you're developing with other people. Maybe don't reply to that Facebook post or that tweet. You know, think about the harm you're doing in the world and how we're all being affected by that. Think about if you're having an actual productive conversation. And I'm saying this as someone who has to also control their temper as well and think about what I'm doing. So, you know, we're all learning together. Let me know how it goes. Before we go into the I don't care to do you segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage you to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Dude, it really helps other people find us. Second, I want to tell you to follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logi L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogicom dot com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, we are laying out all of the links and resources we spoke about throughout the podcast in the VIP group. Go check it out. Now, while you're on my website, you might happen to notice that I have a book coming out inside Melania. What I learned about Melania Trump by impersonating her. It's coming out June 14th and we'll be on tour with the Melania Trump Roadshow. Get out the vote and get me out of the White House of garbage sometime before the election. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this than by reading the headlines. So, Melania, are you on the line? Okay, now give us the top headlines in the I don't care do you segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. Riots and looting are happening across the country and also protests. But the Trumps don't acknowledge that. Six million people have gotten the corona, but don't worry. The U.S. is still number one in cases and deaths. Ooh, but I don't cares. Do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Mandy McLennan for making the podcast start, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Gina Hill for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks.